Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson, and Dustin is back this episode after his break. And we have Max Seidman with us. Max Seidman is a game designer for the indie publisher Resonim, based in Hanover, New Hampshire. Max co-designs with Dr. Mary Flanagan, the owner of Resonim, and you may have played some of their games like Monarch or Visitor in Blackwood Grove. Max, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And Dustin, welcome back. Hi there. Good to be back. So, this episode is going to be a little all over the place. we got a couple different shorter topics we wanted to talk about, and then we're going to record another episode that is more focused that will be coming out in two weeks to you people that are listening now. Um, first off, I wanted to talk about a couple things I'm doing sort of with the podcast or extensions of the podcast. Um, I just set up the Board Game Workshop Award, which this was based off of an episode of Great Way Games I was listening to where they were talking about board game awards and how there wasn't anything like the Emmys where things get awards for particular episodes. They just get it for the entire show. So like Best Podcast gets an award, but there's not like Best Dramatic Episode of a Podcast this year. And it got me thinking that it's, it's interesting because, especially with podcasts, which I listen to a lot of podcasts, the, um, like there are really good board game design podcasts. And they are the same good board game design podcasts that have been around for the last couple of years. And if someone asks, what are good board game design podcasts, people say the same list. I mean, it's, there's not that many board game design focused podcasts out there compared to the larger board game podcast world. So it's always the same few mentioned like, oh, I like this for this reason. But it's always the same things. And while that is great, and I listen to all of them, or most of them, at least the ones I know of, it's, it's kind of very vague because you're talking about some podcasts that are like in 100 or 200 episodes, you know, go like, oh, just listen to it and you can listen to the new ones. But there's so much that already came out that I think some of that is getting lost to time unless you're really digging in specifically looking for something. So the goal with the Board Game Workshop Award is to focus on specific episodes or articles of board game design media that people found helpful or useful that came out in the past year. So I have it set up on the website. If you go to theboardgameworkshop.com and click on award up at the top, you can nominate any podcast episodes, video episodes, or articles that came out in the past year that you found helpful or interesting. And I'm going to put together a list and then have the public vote on it in January. And there's no prize or anything. It's just basically curating a list of what people found to be the most helpful things of the year and just keep that going and have kind of a, a good curated list of what people think the best content is. So trying to get that started. So if you're out there and have listened to an interesting episode, go write it down. Oh, very cool. The other thing is the, um, the design day, which I've been talking about on Twitter and Facebook and trying to push that. So in Massachusetts, in Taunton, we are going to have a design day October 19th. Me and my friend Brian Compter, who's been on the show a couple of times and who runs the Southern Board Game, Southern Mass Board Game Designers, something like that. I forget the name exactly, but um, we're put together a design day. It's going to be a 12-ish hour event at the Holiday Inn in Taunton. So designers can sign up and get a five-hour table for $30. And for that five hours, you can demo any games you want in production, prototypes, whatever you're looking for feedback on. We hope to get a bunch of playtesters there to play the games and give useful feedback. It is free for playtesters, so if you're just looking for something to do on a Saturday in October and you can get down to Taunton, I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun helping people fine-tune their games. And again, you can go to theboardgameworkshop.com and click on Design Day up at the top, and that'll have the description of the event, links to buy tickets, which last I checked, I think there are still a good amount of designer tables left, so if you want to sign up for those before they disappear. Um, yeah, I think that's all the the news stuff I have. So the other thing is, just Saturday, me and Max were both at Boston Fig showing off our games, so I thought we would open up with some discussion about that. Dustin, I don't know how familiar you are with Boston Fig. Have you, do you know anything about it? Yeah, I'm pretty familiar, but obviously from a distance. I've never been out there, but I've browsed the, um, the, the website and listened to your podcast as you've interviewed people uh, out there in the 
the past couple of years. So, yeah. Well, great. You can ask any questions you want and try to make us focus on things that would be interesting to people that haven't been, because it is different from the inside and the outside. But uh, let's start with uh, congratulating Max on getting the award for Tabletop Best Innovation. Right? Th yeah, thanks. Yeah, Mechanica won the Most Innovative Tabletop Game Award, I think, is what, exa what exactly it was called. Um, it was it was exciting. Um, we, we didn't see it coming, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because no one... I think in the past, they had done... Like, all the awards except the audience choice was decided ahead of time because everyone had to send in their games. This was the first year they changed it so the judges would actually be playing at the event, which I'm kind of surprised that they managed to get that organized because just getting a table at some games, especially the popular ones that are more likely to win an award, is really difficult. So having the judges have to kind of get in there to play, but they managed to get it done. But, um, yeah, I think in the past people had a bit of warning so they knew where to sit, or no, I'm not sure. I've never won an award, so, but, uh. But this time it was just kind of a surprise to everyone. And then they threw the games up on the screen as they read the names. must have been quite exciting to just see your game on the screen before you won, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, it's it's always... Uh, it, it's happened before. I've seen, been in the nominations, and it's always kind of like edge of your seat. Like, oh, man, am I going to have to get up right now and go down and receive that award? Yeah. Did you have two games going at uh, Lost Fig? Yeah, actually. Um, so Resonum had um, Mechanica, which is our upcoming title, and surreal which is a work in progress about uh having a hosting a dinner party of surrealist artists um fortunately they were right next door so we could our staff could run back and forth but yeah we were trying to run those two and my day job also had a video game in the digital area so it was busy oh really did you have to do anything for that or were you just around i was i was i mean i i arranged all the setup and all that jazz and i had to run over and check on them but it was uh whew. Busy, yeah. It was a busy, busy, uh, busy con, but I, I love Boston Fig. It's my favorite, um, favorite show to, to exhibit at all year. Yeah, it is. It's great. I mean, it's, it's actually the only one I've ever really exhibited at. Like I've done play tests at local cons, but I've never had a booth anywhere else. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, one of the things I really like about the show is that it, unlike something like Gen Con or Origins or any of the big tabletop game shows where people who come there are almost entirely big board game fanatics who are there to play board games, um, Bfig, you get a lot of families and just Boston folks who are like, "Oh, I need something to do this Saturday." Yeah, it is. It is a lot of families. It's a good mix, and they. It's an interesting because, like you're saying, like Gen Con. If you get a booth at Gen Con, first of all, you're putting out a lot of money, and your goal is to sell things. Whereas Boston Fig, while you can get booths to sell things, they're much cheaper than Gen Con. But if you're in the showcase, it's very much just about showing off your game, and some of them are even games that are very unrealistic to make into products. It's more of like an event game. Like there is one I heard about they were talking on uh, Family Gamers and you can move things with music. And it's, I saw them setting it up before. It's like a massive wooden panel with electronics. I never actually saw anyone play it. Um, it's, actually, it's Lloyd May's um, uh, audio experience called Zam, I think. Uh, he actually is also from the same town that we are in New Hampshire and uh, he came down with us. So. Ah. So you know all about it. Was that yeah. also one of the nominations for innovation? Yeah, it was, because um, it was certainly very innovative. That's a pretty innovative town in New Hampshire to uh, do board game design. Apparently. Well, it, there's a college, and, and, and we're all kind of spinning off of Dartmouth. Well, there you go. That'll do it. I also really like how, yeah, I, like you were saying, I know um, Immateria won a bunch of the awards or was nominated for a bunch, and yeah. I don't like know a what their... show, right? Yeah, I don't know what, the, what their production plan is, but their, their components are really, really nice. Uh, I'm not sure how producible the components are. Yeah, they were actually right behind me and across from you because we were just yep. diagonal from yep. each other. But yeah, they had like the little etched stones, which... God, they felt really nice. Yeah, they... Uh, I mean, etched stone is a thing you can produce if you get the right quantities. Yep. But it might not be a cheap game. Yep. So Dustin, any questions about Boston Fig? Sounds like it's not just uh, tabletop games. There, there's a variety of different games, digital and and others out there do is there much interaction between you know people going from one to the other or do the board game people kind of stick with the board games so it's there's two sections there's the digital section and the tabletop section uh in previous years it was at mit and they had tabletop on the first floor and then digital was the second floor this year they moved to harvard and is actually in separate buildings it looked like less people this year but i'm not sure if that's just because it was a bigger space so it wasn't as crowded 
or if we weren't getting as much crossover because they were separate buildings. And from what I was hearing, registration was at the digital side, but it wasn't entirely clear that there were tabletop games over on the other side. So I'm curious if people that didn't already know about the tabletop part were necessarily wandering over or not. I see. It certainly is hard to tell. But I think generally there is a lot of crossover. Uh, there's a lot of the same people that are interested in indie video games and indie board games. A lot of the families that come want to do both. Uh, also, from what I heard, the video game side was very, very hot. So that was kind of pushing people out. And where are they going to go? But the tabletop side, where we had fans on and not running 400 computers. <laughs> so Chris, uh, I'm also looking at all the different games in the showcase it says auction comics by Ventic Games. And so is that you or that that is me. So that's not yeah. a, a name that I, I've heard before. You you always say blue cube games or different things like that. So my when I started this whole board game thing back in 2014, like before I had really gotten into the hobby or the community, I started designing games and I decided I needed a website and a Twitter handle and all this. Sounds like I need a company that I can make the logo because I don't have money to pay someone for a logo. And I decided <laughs> I can make a blue square. Well, blue square games was already taken. So I was like, well, a cube isn't that much harder. A cube is a lot harder than a square for logo design. But so I went with blue cube. That was the thing. Made sense. But over the years, I did not become a board game publisher, at least not yet. So blue cube kind of became more of my personal brand. And my Twitter account was just my personal Twitter account. So it got very far away from being a company. And then I started the Board Game Workshop and that became its own thing, which is separate and you know has decent recognition. And then moving forward, I would like to become a publisher. So I was focusing on like, I can't use BlueCube because I've kind of already skewed that the wrong way and I don't want to confuse people and try to remake it. So I was trying to think up company names and I wanted something that was easy to spell unique meant something but actually wasn't a real word so that it would get unique hits on search engines and came up with Ventic because it's vaguely based off the concept of a Venn diagram which I really like Venn diagrams but it also is a meaningless word so then when I was signing up for Boston Fig they're like oh fill out your stuff write down your company I'm like what do I write down I guess I'll start <laughs> using Ventic so it doesn't have a website yet. It doesn't have business cards, but that was the first place I used it. So now, now people know it's there. And there's a mailing list on the Board Game Workshop if you want to sign up. But yeah, so <laughs> the future goal is for that to become a publishing company and publish a game. In somehow. my experience, naming the things is always the hardest part. It really is. But also, once you get to the future, it does not matter what it's called. It's just that it was called something, and now that something means what it is. Yep. Like, come on. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the, the Ventic Games story. I should start using the, uh, the Twitter account. I already have two, and that's hard to manage. As a publisher, um, certainly uh, everyone always says, oh, you should make a unique imprint for each of your games. You get a Facebook and a Twitter, and then quickly things get out of hand. I hate it. I mean, if you only publish one game, it's fine. <laughs> I know, uh, like, Stonemeyer just has the one Facebook account for Stonemeyer, but has a different group for every game. But each one of those groups gets, like, several thousand people in it. So at that level, I imagine it's very useful to split them up. Yeah. Yeah. So any other thoughts on Boston Fig? Yeah, I've talk talked about how, how much I like the audience and how it's kind of different from other conventions. Um, let's see. I also really like the range of games you were saying from non-commercial to commercial, but there's also like very early stage prototypes and very kind of late production games. So I like that range. It's really nice. And the video game side is the same way too, although even the roughest video game is much more developed than the roughest board game. Just True. Because it has to be. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it is a, it's a great mix. I got a couple questions from people about getting into Boston Fig, which... I lucked out because this is the second time I was in. The first time I was in was with my second design game, the second year I had even known about Boston Fig. The first year I'd just gone as an attendee. And I realized years later that I got like incredibly lucky getting in because it's not, it's, it's structured sort of like a board game competition where you, you know, submit your video and stuff. But 
unlike a regular board game competition where they're just judging your game and you know is it a good game does it work for boston fig they're not just judging your game they're judging like how can you present yourself and your game at the show because the prize is a spot in the showcase so even if you have a great game if you're going to come in and not be able to present that well to the public you're not a good fit for the showcase so i think it's very important in your video to get across that you can present so I think showing yourself in the video and showing yourself talking about your game is more important to get into Boston Fig than other game design competitions. I don't know, know what the numbers were this year, but I, I know they get a lot more applications than they have spaces to show. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So it's always just feeling good just to get in. Yeah, I think, I think this year they had 48 in, but I, I want to say it's definitely over 100 submissions. I don't know if it was over 200 this year. It's not an easy thing to get into, so it is it is great to be accepted. And it's great for promoting your game. Yeah. Because it is, it is a big crowd. It's like, I think they said 3,000-something people this year. And it's only $30 to get in. Though. If you get in the showcase, the booth is free after you submit your game for the like $35 entry fee. So that's, you cannot beat the price. <laughs> yeah, Resonim, I think we, we've, ex, we've exhibited there as a sponsor in the past, and it's something like $250, very, very affordable compared to most of the conventions. Exactly, yeah. And it seems like there's some games that have been there before so that born to serve it's the the superhero one yeah, calligraphy the yeah so there there's a few of them that i mean apparently people really like it and they just keep going back yeah it depends on the designers like some some designers focus on one game and they keep doing that for a couple of years and others just switch to new games so you do see some of it is the same companies coming back like resonim is there several times right um then my friend Jim Fitzpatrick, he's been working on Planet Hex for a very long time. And he had that in at least last year, maybe a couple of years. But, um, but this year he had a different game, which is the first time I had seen that he's working on a different game. So, but again, it's the same people and it's a lot of it is the Boston community, but there's also people from around the country and sometimes internationally. But it, it is more of a local focused con, so it's, it is much more the Boston designers and New England designers, which I think Tim, who runs uh, Game Makers Guild and the tabletop part of Boston Fig, was saying like more than half of the games were from Game Maker Guild members. Wow. Was it, was it more than half? Something. It was a large percentage was from, or a large percentage was from design groups. That's what I was saying in his speech at the end, but I think a lot were from the Game Makers Guild in Boston. Which makes sense, because it's game designers sense, yeah. that have the most refined games in the Boston area. But yeah, so that's Boston Fig. I'd recommend it as as something to submit your game to, as something to just attend. It's it's a great event. And, and they had food trucks this year that were pretty good. Although it started raining when I was in line for the food truck. Let's move on to our other topic, which is Hook First Design. So, Max, you suggested this topic. Would you like to give us a bit of an intro about what you were thinking along the lines of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so recently, Nick Bentley of North Star Games um, wrote an excellent little blog post called uh, Board Game Designers Are Bad at Pitching Games to Publishers, um, <laughs> where he talks about that the, the main problem that board game designers have is they are pitching a game but not a product. And in order to, to have a successful product, the game needs to be completely have a completely unique and awesome selling point. Um, and he doesn't use the term, but I, I think of that as the hook. Yeah. Personally, for me, I found this transformative, not because um, this is a new concept to me, and I know many designers think about what's appealing about their game, right? Um, but because I realized that at Resonant, we tend to do hook-first design, and I hadn't thought about that until now. Um, so we kind of, you know, people always ask you, are you a mechanics-first or a narrative-first designer? Um, and the answer is mechanics or narrative second and hook first for us. That's a, it's a good way to go, I think, because like I said, that's, that's what's going to sell the product. And I think we talked about this a bit in an earlier episode, Dustin, where we were talking about how we need, or not we need, but games are pushing to be more unique because mm -hmm. it's such a crowded market. So you always have to be like, well, this is my unique game and this is why I stand out. So if you're starting from that position, then you can focus on it more and build everything else around it. Well, and I can only imagine that Potion Explosion probably started hook first. Can you create a, a game that is like a match three video game and do it in board game space? And it could have, I guess, been mechanical 
you know, ideas first, but I, I would assume that that hook of, you know, do something a little bit different with these marbles clicking and probably is where it began. You would think, because mechanically it's very simple. Yeah. So if they started from that and like, oh, here's a really simple game. What can we throw on it to make it interesting? I suppose it can go that way. And the, yeah, the physical hook in that one is great. Um, let's see. Other stuff that jumps out to me are things games like Sulkin and with the, with the big plastic gears that interlock. Uh, they have great physical hooks. Um, Rhino Hero. Ooh, Rhino Hero is a good one. I mean, that's that's again, it's a super simple mechanically and even as a product. It's a deck of cards and a meeple, but it can have a table presence that you know if you're doing well, four or five feet tall, that's going to get some attention. Well, I wonder too if a game like Fox in the Forest. Um, started with the hook first being a two-player trick-taking game. And I'm not sure if it evolved into that or if it began with that, but that that's a great hook for that game. Yeah, definitely. That's a great example of a mechanical hook. Um, I was thinking, uh, game. let's see, Chronicles of Crime has a great technological hook, the, uh, yeah. the augmented reality thing going on. So I was thinking, um, I'm not sure how much true this is, but I'm wondering if self-publishing allows more interesting hooks in games to come to light because traditional pu- publishers are going to be a little bit risk averse. Um, and, uh, well, and I'm wondering if that's yeah. shifting because I think a couple of years ago, that was definitely true. Like big publishers were like, okay, we're just going to do, you know, the, the next worker placement game, the next installment in our series. But now that the, the industry is flooded with like four to 6,000 games per year, depending on what numbers you're going by. That's that's a lot, even for the big publishers, to be seen above, you know? So I think there are, like, look at um, Fantasy Flight doing their uh, Keyforge with their unique games and the other one that I can never remember the name of. Um, but that's a really big publisher taking a pretty sizable risk on unique manufacturing process to put out a game. I mean, obviously, it's got a lot of quality behind it. Richard Garfield designing it, so, you know, they're not going in with a completely unknown but that was that's a pretty sizable risk for a big company to take that i don't think you really would have seen years ago when people were doing tried and true stuff so i think even now bigger companies are pushing for unique things but i think it did start with a lot more indie publishers coming up and they don't have the marketing budget of the big companies so they they have to be unique they have to get the buzz if they want to survive that's true and i wonder if I wonder how much of the um, unique game system came from the designers of well, Richard Garfield and Keyforge's um, uh, case and the designer, designer of Discover. Is that the other one? That sounds right, yeah. It's, um, um, Corey Canizia, right? Because I wonder, it's, it's interesting because it seems to me that sometimes these hooks, particularly the physical ones, um, maybe don't, like... They're a thing that they're a manufacturing concern, right? So, yeah. so I, I know it seem it might seem to designers that it's not that's not not, not their role to come up with, um, like beyond the design process, and maybe that's changing. I think it definitely is. I mean, looking at so a lot of designers now are like they're if they're not designing hook first, they're definitely finding the hook. And they're definitely using that to pitch to publishers. For sure. Um, I'm just, yeah. It's certainly, I, I with, with, some, with some of my early titles, um, I felt kind of afraid to go towards anything unique in manufacturing or anything beyond just the mechanics and the gameplay and some of the graphic design maybe. Um, and so I, I, I'm hoping that's changing and maybe that's, um, maybe it is. I think even on the, like the very, the very indie side, like looking at the Game Crafter as far as like small companies using that as their production and distribution and not going to full print runs or not going to Kickstarter even. Now, like the Game Crafter started off doing very basic stuff. You could do a board, you could do cards, you could put meeples on it. And then they've been increasing their abilities over time. Now you can do custom shapes in chipboard custom plastic custom cards so they're they're expanding their capabilities even at that low end and i'm sure anything they can do a bigger manufacturer can do at a larger quantity although prices change yes absolutely shout out to the game crafter because 
basically all of the unique, unique portions of Mechanica were things that we prototyped using GameCrafters laser cutting. There you go. Laser cutting is the future. Uh, I, I would love it. Yeah, we've got... So in Mechanica, we have a couple of physical hooks that I really like. Um, one of which is the puzzle pieces that fit together. So you're building this assembly line out of interlocking puzzle pieces. So instead of just being tiles that you put next to each other, they actually interlock. Nice. And the other one is this rotating shop wheel where you put the puzzle pieces in and they spin around and then eventually they fall through a hole into the box. And neither of those, both of those things we had ideas for and had no idea if they were going to be possible. Um, and so the, the laser cutting was, was crucial in actually proving proof of concept that we could do those. So, Dustin, have you done any hook first design for your games? You know, I, I'm working on actually a couple of them right now. Button Shy's got their 18-card uh, identical card contest going on right now, and that has been a, an awesome challenge to work with where every single card uh, has to be identical. The fronts and the backs can be different, um, but in those 18 cards, the whole game has to exist with the same fronts and the same backs, if that makes sense. And so that's got a really interesting hook, and that that's done by the the publisher, really throwing that out, saying who who can design in this space. Uh, the other one that I'm working on right now is a trick-taking game that has some modular aspects to it, and so each suit has some specific, I guess, powers is a good way to say it, but kind of unique parts that they add to the game. And there's ten different suits that you can have, and you only play with five of them, so you can kind of interchange and create lots of different. Uh, gameplay experiences with that cool and you started you started with the hook and building off of that yeah i did especially with trick taking trick taking is it's kind of a strange thing because there's a whole group of people that love trick taking games and there's a whole group of people that do not understand what a trick taking game is at all and it's very strange it's one of those games that or one of those styles of games that if you already know how to play then all of the trick-taking games really come pretty easy. But if you've never played one, they're really kind of a tough teach in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, essentially they're an auction game if you get round, down to it. But that confuses people because you're <laughs> calling an auction a trick. And then you have a hand. And how many hands are in a trick and how many tricks are in a hand? <laughs> I don't know. I love trick-taking games. They're a lot of fun. You know, one of the other things that I was thinking about so Jesse Shell has a, a game, or excuse me, a book called The Art of Game Design. And it's a book of lenses. There's all these different lenses that you can look at your game design through. And this week I was actually looking at, at one of those lenses called The Lens of Novelty. And it says, to ensure that you harness the powerful motivation of novelty, ask yourself these questions. What is novel about my game? Does my game have novelties throughout or just in the beginning? Do I have the right mix of novel and the familiar and when the novelty wears off will players still enjoy my game and in some ways i, I think about these hooks that we're talking about and novelty kind of has a, a negative connotation at times that if i've got a game that has some novelty element it's almost seen as kind of a pasted on piece and and when you have a game that isn't more than just its novelty or isn't more than just its hook? Is it kind of shallow on the other side? That's that's a question we really have to ask ourselves uh, when we're designing. Uh, how deep does this go? How important is it to the gameplay? Does it really connect, if that makes sense? Yeah. For sure. Although I think it's... I don't think it's necessarily bad if it is shallow and it is just the novelty or the word gimmick comes to mind. Yeah, gimmick. But I think, especially if you're going with a lighter game, especially... Um, I'm blanking on the word. Dexterity games. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Especially like dexterity games. Some of the simpler dexterity games, it is just a one single gimmick. But that one gimmick is so entertaining in the right groups at the right time that it does well in its own space. It's not the thing you're going to build a game day around, but 3 o'clock in the morning at the convention with 15 people around, it becomes that con experience that you can't get anywhere else, you know? Yeah, and I think the, the words that we use kind of shape our, our belief about the thing that we're interacting with, if, if that's a game or something else. When, when somebody feels like their heart's not really in it, in the thing that they're doing, they might say that they're faking it until they make it. When somebody else, when they're really putting some effort into it, they call it practice. It's kind of the same thing, <laughs> but we've got such a negative yeah. connotation around fake it till you make it, or the word gimmick, or sometimes the word novelty. 
so hook is, is such a better word to, to use, and, and they're not exactly the same thing, but sometimes the words that we use kind of shape our, our belief about the thing that we're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, also, I don't think it's necessarily bad, even if the if the innovation or novelty is like, uh, if the hook is almost tacked on, that can still work so long as there's enough stuff to carry the game afterwards, right? Yeah, well said. Um, yeah. The tacked on one being mousetrap, of course, once you get over the well, in that case, gimmick, I guess. There's not <laughs> much gameplay, right? But if imagine if after the gimmick of Mousetrap, there was actually a really solid game there as well. Then maybe the... the I would the buy that no- right away. Exactly. The novelty is onboarding you, and you're staying for the game. You hear that, Restoration Games? Get on Mousetrap. Make it better. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a great example of a game with, with great novelty is Fireball Island. Yep. Although, is it really novelty if it's 20 years old, 30 years old? Yeah. I mean, it hasn't really been done in between, so... Exactly. Yeah, it still, has, it still has a hook. Yeah. I mean, nostalgia itself can be a hook. Yeah. Well, with restoration is obviously proven that can work very well. We've talked about Carl Chedick before and his designs, and he definitely has a, a gimmick to the, the way he designs in, in using the cards with each side and flipped around, and, and yet, I mean, what fantastic games. Yeah. I particularly like... Um, there's a type of hook that I think we haven't discussed, which is... Um, context of play like how the game is played um uh like an example of this is have you ever played palm island oh love it i have not played it oh it's fantastic i I know of it yeah and so like the their hook is that the game um you don't the cards are always in your hand um you don't put them down you're actually holding a deck and kind of leafing through it as you go um and the context of play hook there is that you can play it anywhere right you can take it to the beach because you're never putting it down, they're not going to get sandy. Your cards aren't going to blow away. Whatever. I really mm-hmm. like that context. the The context to play hook. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. I too. think um, Happy Salmon falls into that. Yep. Happy Salmon also has some other great hooks. Like the, uh, <laughs> uh, it's extremely um, visible, I guess. Yeah, very noisy. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in game design hooks that are more out there, like the context hook like you were talking about or manufacturing hooks like Keyforge because while you can take a normal board game, you know, you have cards, you have a board, you have meeples, and you have some unique hook, you know, maybe thematic, maybe mechanical. But the ones that are more of a product hook than a game hook, I think those are the most interesting because those are the places that can open up entire new areas of design. Like now the Keyforge opened up procedurally generated decks. Like that, that can go so many different places if people take it that way. Uh, Legacy is kind of a good example of this, although it's not really a manufacturing difference, but is kind of a concept of what is a game difference when they're like, okay, we're going to change the game. We're going to destroy part of it. And at first people were not, not quite on board with that, but then it blew up to this thing that everyone's like, oh, we need Legacy games, we need Legacy games. Turns out they're incredibly difficult to design, so we're not <laughs> flooded with legacy games yet, but we do have a lot more than we used to, and people are still really interested in the concept, though a lot of people seem to be finding out that they don't have 15 play sessions with the same group of friends to actually get a legacy game done. Yeah, I think this kind of brings us full circle because um, that's kind of what Nick Bentley at North Star Games in his recent article was talking about. In the end, he was talking about where do we really... Th- th- to be new products, they... To have the best hooks, new products need um, more innovative um, hooks, more innovative um, tweaks than just, oh, this is a game that uh, the genre typically doesn't go to this many players, but this one does. Like, that's all good, and that's good to have in your design, but it's not not quite enough. Mm -hmm. And especially as we move forward, that's been done, you know? We've done trick takers at 2, we've done trick takers at 10, we've done trick takers at 150, you know? At a certain point, you don't care. You want something different in your trick take. And sometimes it can be so simple that innovation uh, can just, I don't know, Hanabi, for example, you're not looking at your own cards and you couldn't have a more simple hook. And yet what a, what a fantastic game. Yep. Sometimes it's just a very, a very slight tweak to something you've been doing for the past 400 years. I think that's a really good example. So over on the discord, we got some questions from Dr. Wicks. Um, his first one is how to pitch a non-standard theme, and he references the uh, Nick Bentley article you're talking about, Max. So any suggestions on how to pitch a non-standard theme? Assuming to a publisher or to the public, depending on your position, if you're self-publishing. What kind, does he have examples of non-standard themes? 
No. Like well, wingspan. So personally, I think very vague question, <laughs> Doctor Wicks. Um, I, I've been amazed at how open the themes are in board games. Like you do get a lot of repetition, but also that you get a lot of weird things that I wouldn't, that I would expect would not fly in most other places. Um, so I think, I don't know. I, I, uh, one of my early games is called mad science foundation. It's about scientists, mad scientists competing for grants. That's a pretty weird and niche topic. I think, uh, for a lot of places, but board game industry is totally in, in, in for that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I haven't actually done much pitching, but I think, much like anything else, it's about finding the right publisher. So if you have a really weird game, say say your non-standard theme is, I don't know, something about the business world, so something that most people would consider dry because it's their day job, find the publisher that is interested in business games and just kind of line up or take something that is very similar to something they already have, but you have this unique twist. So it's something that they're mostly comfortable with, but could be a nice counterpoint to another product they already have. Any other suggestions for pitching a non-standard theme? Try them. Maybe you'll be surprised. Yeah, one of the things that seems evident is you've got more, I guess, unique themes coming out now than ever before. So 20 years ago, a game about birds may not have made any splash, but today that was a good time for Wingspan to come out. So sometimes it's recognizing the the culture of, of the times and, and what publishers and, and players uh, are open to. All right, is next question, what are the possibilities for game design in a classroom? So I actually work at a school, so I have some experience being in a classroom. And I think game design itself, as opposed to games, um, I know Kathleen Mercury talks about this a lot because she has a game design class. Mm -hmm. And so if you listen to her stuff on onboard games, yes, that's what she's on. But she's also done interviews on a lot of other stuff. She's been on this podcast before. But um, she teaches she teaches gifted students, and they do game design. And one of the things she always mentions is it's the first time that they have failed because they're so used to being the successful students that know everything, they pass the test. But game design doesn't work that way. You don't just pop out a game design and it works the first time. That is very rare. I mean, it happened to me once, but I wouldn't recommend that. So it's, I think it's a really useful, safe space for students to fail. Uh, it can be tied into whatever subject you're working on or just the concept of working on a project and you're going to fail and you're going to try again and you're going to try again and again and you're just going to keep trying forever because that's what life is. You just keep trying. Um, so I've participated in, in game design classes for sure when I was a kid going up through school and then at the college level, uh, Professor Flanagan, who uh, owns Resonim, um, teaches a game design course and I find one of the challenges is game literacy um, at the kind of high school and younger level level you it's I've seen that it's hard to get the students up to speed on here's some games you can make beyond Parcheesi um, yeah. but once we get to the college level Professor Flanagan assigns a bunch of games like required reading um, and the students the students really just make amazing games they make games to uh combat cholera they make uh games to fight bullying they do all sorts of really great things and i think it starts from being able to have a chance to play some some new games does anything add so i also work at a school but it's a therapeutic boarding school or it's a residential treatment center um but we we use games a fair amount um, but it's all through more of the therapeutic lens. Um, but I, I can only imagine that if, if you can make math or history or anything else a little more gamified, the, the buy-in from the students may go up. Um, and so I, I was just kind of thinking in those terms, and I'm not sure that I've got a solution for how that needs to be done. I think a little bit about um, the guy who's behind Santorini, uh, Gordon Hamilton is I think his name. And he, he does a lot with, with math and kind of gamifying math and unsolvable questions and things like that. And so he may be somebody to, to look up if, if you're interested in, in how to make uh, the classroom a, a little more open to gaming. Yeah, I was just thinking game design is it's kind of a unique way to look at a problem as opposed to other forms of media, writing or video, which all have their benefits and difficulties. But I think game design 
it's just an interesting way to look at problems and especially you kind of swing it into simulations of certain things so you can you can look at like history works very well because you can look at how history could have been in different situations and find out how important was this one moment if that hadn't happened is everything changed is nothing changed was that just a popular moment that didn't actually affect things and you can look at it in a lot of different ways with game design certainly it uh, encourages system like understanding a system well enough to model that system uh, mm -hmm. when we're talking about systemic games um, and i know personally for my work when i need to build a system that that re re uh, represents real life that's kind of simulates real life i need to learn a lot about that system first yeah definitely where are the limits of game space the board the table the room i would say there aren't any have, have we seen many games that use uh, the full room uh two rooms and a boom is the only one i can think of yeah i think two rooms i think that's a that's a a hook that's coming up i've certainly done a few prototypes that have uh used used the room around the players um we haven't gone through producing any of them because of that question we don't know how how open people are going to be to playing that but it's a it's an untapped hook for sure yeah there is there's one I saw, I think I just saw it on the GameCrafter. I don't know if I got there from some other location, but it was, it's kind of like a haunted house theme, but you set it up like around your house. So mm -hmm. there'd be like different decks of cards in different rooms. And I think you're supposed to play it in the dark too. So you'd have to like go around with flashlights and like people would find the deck of cards. So it's kind of like a light LARP that was based on a card game. And you like go around and collect certain things. I forget how it worked, but they were like working with that concept of, you know, taking the space and then uh, another thing I was always wanting to do, but never really pushed forward enough to design it and get get going, because it, it would require a lot of buy-in from the public. But I wanted to run kind of like a mega game, if you're familiar with mega games, where they it's kind of like a you know four-hour, eight-hour LARP of something like um, oh, what's that thing? Model UN is essentially a mega game. You get a bunch of people that all have their parts and come together, and there is a sort of game element, and not necessarily winning, but but my thought was to have kind of a sub game at a convention. So when you signed up for the convention, you got a card that was like your character, your abilities. And then throughout the day, you would run into other people that also had a card. And then you would have some sort of interaction or fight or whatever that I never bothered to get to designing. But I thought it'd be just a neat thing to have kind of like a, an all day meta game going on at a convention. Uh, Carnage Con, um, uh, one of the attendees uh, runs a, a meta game a little bit like that. It's less narrative. Um, but as I recall, you're challenged to do specific things, um, and then as you complete them, you can register the cards online, I think, um, okay. and you get a new one and keep going. Yeah, I have to look at it. Well, I think games like Detective in many ways take you beyond the room, and so using the, the Internet and researching things, uh, I, I think that that in some ways kind of breaks that game space. Oh, God, I love I love games that make you do real-world world research. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of... Uh... There was, there was an escape room game. I'm not going to mention which one, so there's no spoilers. But we're, we're playing through the game, and then we, we eventually solve a puzzle, and we get, we get a 10-digit number. And a 10-digit number is a phone number. And we're like, well, what do we, what do, we do? Like, I think we call the phone number. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Why would we call a phone number? That's not a thing I'm comfortable doing. So call the phone number. And then there's a message on the other end, and it's an answer to another puzzle. <laughs> like this. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Like, at first, it was very odd, and then second, it was kind of uncomfortable because I didn't know if I was supposed to. Did they just throw a phone number in the game that's someone's phone number? But you know, you gotta you gotta take that leap and solve the puzzle because you can't not escape the room, right? I love that. Cool. Let's let's do a board game that makes you call a phone number. <laughs> Actually, side note: so at Boston Fig, I was giving out a bunch of old comic books because my game was auction comics and just choosing as a giveaway to get people and. Uh, so just giving, there are all these old comics I had from the mostly 80s and 90s that I did not care about anymore, and I'm happy to be rid of them. But as I was like giving them out, I was just you know flipping through some, and the ads are the most amusing things because ads from the 80s and 90s are different than ads today. But there was one. It was on the. It was a full back cover of a comic, and it was it was designed like a bathroom stall. It said like call this number and stuff, and like that whole look. And then it was. Call this 900 number, 900 number, mind you, you have to pay money for this, to talk about Parker Brothers' new games. Oh, wow. And I was amazed that that is a thing anyone would do. But before the internet, you would have to call 900 numbers to hear ads. 
and that's very strange to me now. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that aside. So well, if if phone numbers could be randomly generated like KeyForge decks, and just you call random people depending on what board game you get, that'd be something. <laughs> I mean, with with Google Voice, there's uh, there's quite a bit they could do with, with uh, phone numbers now, and robocalls are kind of a problem. But if you could gamify robocalls, that could be a whole different thing. I'd be lying if I said that we hadn't considered games that make you call random people and interact with them. <laughs> and every time I've shot them down because it sounds so uncomfortable. Yeah, it does. But it also sounds like it wouldn't work because no one answers their phone anymore. That's yeah, true. That too. You'd have to specifically call businesses. They're forced to answer. So what else do we have? And we're, we're not condoning that. We should probably put that out there. <laughs> yes. Don't call people ever. You should text or you should email. Nobody wants a phone call. All right, moving on. Uh, Arctech in the Discord asks, how does successfully merge analog and digital, if at all? What games do this in a unique and meaningful way? We were talking about this a bit before the show, and I was I was mentioning how I, I don't really see this as often. There was this kind of a big hype about it when it first started. I know XCOM was one of the earlier ones that had like the app that helped run the game. And then everyone's like, oh... We're going to have all these apps. It's going to do all this stuff. And other people are like, I hate apps in my board games. Get that phone out of the room. And it never really took off like people were excited slash worried it was going to. Like you have some games that do it, but I don't, I don't think it ever materialized like people expected it would. I think even before XCOM, I was thinking about um, a Space Alert, right? It came with a CD. Yeah. Huge pain in the butt to get that to work. Um, Especially well, nowadays when no one has a CD player. Exactly. Um, I'm surprised that I wasn't able to find an app for that. But um, So in Mechanica, we have an augmented reality app that shows you... It's a, it's a learning aid, so it's purely optional. Um, and that's I, I'm on that camp of things. I don't want um, required apps in most of my games. Um, but it allows you to point your camera at the elements of the game, which are these these puzzle piece tiles, and we'll do an animation to show you how they work, projected on top of the uh, on top of the piece itself, which I wow, think is a really is cool. a nifty little thing. Yeah. How uh, how difficult is that to do? Um, well, there are a bunch of augmented reality apps already on the market, and we are actually working with Aria, the augmented reality platform. Um, so we didn't need to build any of the tech, really. We just said, uh, we sent them, here's an image of the piece, and here's the animation we want to play on top. And we gave them all the images and all the animations, and they uploaded them, and now it works. So it was actually surprisingly easy. Oh, that's, that's um, a pretty solid way to teach games. Yeah, I would love to see somebody come up with an, a, a board game-specific augmented reality app that's just like, you know, point your camera at the cover of the game. Okay, this is Mechanica. Now I'm loading all the animations for Mechanica. Now you can learn uh without having to um without having to watch a whole video right you can just learn about the particular part you want to know yeah um and i think we're going to be talking about this more in in a little bit <laughs> yeah definitely you know when when i think about technology and board games um one night ultimate werewolf i don't know that i would ever want to play without the app if if i felt like i needed to to run all those parts and i, I know it's not a big deal it's a pretty short script but it's nice to just push play and everybody closes their eyes and we have a great time. Well, usually you have a person kind of not play the game so they can run it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with um, um, Mansion of the Madness. So it's the second edition. They brought in the app that runs the game. So now it's a co-op game that's going against the app as opposed to the original one that had sort of a game master that wasn't your enemy. They were running the game, which some people enjoy that and it can be fun. But they are they're not allowed to play the way everyone else is allowed to play because of the mechanics of the game. So I think it definitely helps with stuff like that. Yeah. I certainly like the model where you don't actually have to look at the phone, right? That's the kind of the one night werewolf thing. You set it up, you put it down and it runs. Yeah. I like that a lot more because the, it's the staring at the screen that I think takes people out of the experience. Also, depending on like, does everyone have to see the screen? Are you passing around a phone? Yeah. That's, it makes it more difficult. Um, so the hearing is also problematic at, um, like conventions can be really tough if you have to listen to anything, especially if it's really important information. Well, Lucky Duck Games with Chronicles of Crime, um, they they made it so that as you're looking in the phone, you're you're like seeing part of the crime scene and you're describing it to other people. And I, I think that they seem to do it pretty well because I I agree I don't want to be looking at my phone during a game, and yet that one intrigues me. I think that they they kind of walk that line just right. Well, it's nice because only one person has to look, you know, so you're not. 
worried about passing it around. Like it's a very set, like this is your job. You're supposed to look at the phone. Right. So someone like detective, like someone has to be on the computer to look stuff up. But it feels like that's your job. I mean, that feels more like role playing because you're on a computer researching stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think some games do it very well. I think some, like you're saying, just having it as a learning aid is a really useful thing. Uh, even if it's just an interactive video, not necessarily AR. I do think it's a, there's a stupid reason why we don't see this more. And that's that the, uh, the development costs for digital assists or really any sort of digital component is pretty expensive and you're still limited by the tabletop market. So you get the worst of both worlds. Yeah, that's tough. But I mean, like you're saying, if there's certain platforms that already exist and the overhead for this is really just come up with the animation, that's, yeah. that's a, that's a lower level than, you know, it's not program this app. It's make some animation, which most medium to large board game companies can manage to get animations. They have them made for Kickstarters and ads all the time. So just getting ones made in the right format to put on an AR, that's reasonable, I think. I agree. And so I think that's that's why we're gonna see, we're seeing more kind of digital assists as opposed to fully hybrid tabletop digital games. Yeah, I think also like you're saying, them being optional things is probably more palatable to people because there there are the group of people that do not want apps in their games they want to get away from technology to have fun with a board game and this this allows both groups to be happy although there are things that app assisted games can do that board games can't like hidden information is it's, computers are really good at hidden information <laughs> decks of cards not so much yeah i'm looking forward to talking about that in a second right yeah definitely so let's end it with some contact info. Max, where can people follow you, get in touch with you, see what you're working on, and any projects coming out or locations you'll be at? And this should be this should be up Wednesday, so just a couple days. Sure. Um, so uh, I work for Resonim, and that's R-E-S-O-N-Y-M. Uh, you can check us out at Resonim.com. Um, I think we're also the Resonim on Instagram. Um, that's the best place to follow us. You can email me at maxatresonum.com if you want to. And um, our newest thing coming out is Mechanica, which is releasing in uh, December. Awesome. And Dustin, uh, your contact info? Yeah, you can find me at Odd Fox Games on Facebook. I'm also on Discord. Um, probably the easiest one to find me on is the Board Game Workshops Discord channel. And on Twitter, I am BlueCubeBGS and several other places too, although I'm mainly just on Twitter. Um, and then on the Discord also, which you can go to theboardgameworkshop.com and the Discord link is right in the front page there. Also the link to the design day, the link to the awards, the link to the contest, which next year will be called the showcase, and the link to all of the show notes and episodes. So go to theboardgameworkshop.com and click on things. And that does it for this episode. Thanks for coming on. Bye-bye. It's been great to be here. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. You can check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters. Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Bachelor, Roscoe Schock, Vas Cottis, and Corey Muddeman. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at thebgworkshop and on Facebook at theboardgameworkshop. Join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can call the show's Google Voice number at 725-222-8249 and leave a question or contributor segment for a future episode. You can get the links for these and all show notes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.